Welcome to Talking Wyndham, your weekly insight into the people who make our city surprising, fascinating, vibrant and interesting. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page. Hi and welcome to another edition of the Talking Wyndham podcast. My name's Kevin Hillier and today you'll meet a man who is a futurist and a keynote speaker. And you might also know him from his appearances in the media. Uh, you might hear him on 3AW and of course see him on the Channel 9 business show called The Rebound. Got some fascinating insights into a whole lot of areas. You'll meet him very shortly in his uh, early days. We're right here in the uh, in the city of Wyndham, growing up in Werribee. But a reminder about the Committee for Wyndham and uh, the great work that they do and how you can become a member, take advantage of being a member and the advantages of being a member. All on the, uh, the website and the Facebook page and also the uh, past episodes of uh, this podcast you might want to have a listen to as well and check out the events that are coming up. But let's get into today's edition of the Talking Wyndham podcast and let's meet Steve Sammartino. He's a man with a, a fascinating insight into many areas, as I said, so let's meet him and talk about those early days in Werribee. I've got to tell you, I think growing up there gave me a real advantage. Yeah. Because it, it, the, the breadth of the community there really holds you in good stead in being able to communicate with all walks of life and, and, and see different things. I, I often say that the, the Turak set, they've, they've only got one gear, whereas, you know, I can I can sort of talk with anyone from, you know, agricultural to people who are, you know, have have uh, more moderate means for living to, to wealthy people to just the breadth of society in a place like Wyndham, yeah. I think gives you exposure to the world as it is, you know, it's the United Nations in uh, one location. <laughs> yeah, opens, opens your eyes up to what's uh, what's out there. It, it really does. Yeah. And you survived <laughs> swimming in the Werribee River too, I believe. Oh, yeah. I, I <laughs> learnt to swim in Werribee River and I can remember the names of all the, the swimming places, you know, Bungie's Hole and <laughs> uh, Mozzie's Hole and uh, we, we used to swim at all of them and we had ropes hanging off the river and I remember we'd be like, 10 minutes of someone saying, okay, who's going to jump in first? Like, because you never know what was under there. I mean, they were the risky <laughs> days, you know, like no one will let their kids go 20 metres from their parents these days. And my mum would be like, okay, be careful down the river. And I was in grade two and I'd ride my BMX down to Werribee River and jump off a tree into the water. I mean, I'll tell you what, risk profile then versus now. There, it's a totally different thing. <laughs> Absolutely. When did, uh, when did being a futurist um, become what you, what you wanted to do? It's about a decade now, sort of 10 years I've been doing that. It sort of evolved from what I had studied. And so I'd been an entrepreneur from a really young age. I had my first business was an egg farm. You know, I had an organic egg farm on because I, I grew up on a farm in Werribee. And I started, me and my brother started a little egg farm. So we had that business. I had a clothing company for a period of time. And then living out on the farm, Back in the day, you, you couldn't connect that much. So I actually had a computer at a really young age and I learned how to code. Yep. And then I studied economics at uni and those things kind of merged in the early 2000s where I had my entrepreneurial skills, understanding business and society. I studied economics at uni, so more of that business stuff and I knew how to code and build software. And when you mash those things together, a lot of people started actually inviting me. It's almost like I got picked. I didn't pick myself. I just had the pieces of the puzzle that people wanted someone to put together. And so I got invited a lot to do talks on where do I think all this digital stuff's going through my uh, corporate friends and they would invite me in. And then people just started calling me a futurist. I didn't even really know. They said, oh, we're going to get this futurist. I said, future what? (laughs) And it was just because I – 
it was it was just because I understood where the tech was going. I understood economics and technology, and I would just morph those and go, look, if you can see where society's going and the tech can do this and next it'll do that, and uh, and then it evolved. And I ended up just writing a lot of books and doing media and TV shows and all sorts of stuff on tech in the future. Yeah. Is it is it because people have, you know find it hard to to get their head around it that you can explain it in such a way that they actually do understand it and that's that is is a gift. I think so. Look, and I've always been quite comfortable speaking, even as a young child. And and one of the things that I really love is explaining complex things in simple ways. Yep. And 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 so this idea of being able to teach by analogy, which is mostly what I do. Uh, it's, it's something that I think it is, it's a bit of a way. And I actually have like a little method on how I explain anything from the future. I talk about human behavior and that's something that doesn't change. We think it changes, but it actually doesn't. We've got the same needs we had 200,000 years ago. Yeah. And then I base it in economic incentives, why people do things. People have financial incentives. And then I talk about what the technology will be able to do now and in the next three or five years. And so I say, look, if you look at how people make money and how people behave, you can see that this technology will go in this direction. And just that, those simple three things, anthropology, technology, and economics, I just bring them together and it, it frames it up in a way that people go, oh, I get it now. Yeah. And, and, and that's good because it helps everyone get on with life if you can just sort of say, well, it'll go here for these reasons. Then people understand it actually helps them. So I really enjoy it. Does a, a global pandemic come along and just completely move the goalposts into a whole different area for you or how did, how did you handle that? Uh, for me, it was difficult in my business as well. So I mostly spend my time speaking with large groups of people in rooms doing keynote speeches. That was like 80% of my revenue as a business. Yeah. So that went out the window in a heartbeat. And like many people, I had to pivot and do something new. And so what I thought was, how do I take my product into a new market? And so I, I ended up um, doing a TV show called The Rebound. Um, and I did a lot of online presentations. But the pandemic... I think in terms of what it's done to society is that it's created two things. I call them accelerations and forks. So some things that were bubbling along with technology ended up happening a lot quicker. So the work from anywhere revolution with information work, that was happening, but it was happening slowly. And now it's bang, it's, it's never going back. We'll have hybrid work where we go in the office and a bit at home yep. and mix it up, but that's never going to go back. And then you get these forks in the road, uh, which are things like, yeah, after 9-11, people might remember, it used to be much easier to travel before that. And then all of a sudden, we start testing people for the weapons outside their bodies and taking their shoes off. And now when you go to an airport, you get temperature checks and they test you for the weapons inside your body. You've got to bring your vaccine passport. <laughs> so it's so a really good way for listeners to think about it is to say, post-pandemic, what things have been accelerated? So what technologies have happened quicker? And then what are some of the societal shifts, forks in the road where we can't do certain things or we have to have certain behaviours now, checking in when you go for a coffee. Like, that's a fork. That wasn't there. That's new. And just by looking at those two things, what are my forks and accelerations in my life, in my family and in my business, gives you a really simple template to understand how to behave. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You mentioned that human behaviour hasn't changed, That, uh, but in keeping up with tech, the technology, aren't you, and, and bringing that technology into our into our every space, aren't you asking humans to... to I don't know whether you're saying to change their behaviour, but certainly uh, adapt their behaviour? Yeah, so it's, it's an adaptation. The things that we want from the technology are always the same. And, and, and the simplest one I'm going to go to is we're social beings. And above all things that we want are uh, 
We want affiliation, affection, and acceptance. And and if I break this down in a way that listeners will understand, uh, if you think about social media, what do we want? We want comments. We want like buttons. We want interactions. They're ostensibly the same needs that we have where we used to do that physically. We'd catch up and we'd cuddle each other. And you want someone to listen when you're speaking. Yeah. All of those things are online. And, and it's the same behavior. It's just exacerbated digitally. Uh, but, but I guess the problem is, is that some of it's false. It's not as real. And, and sometimes what we need to do is understand how the technology probably gets in the way. And, and we're, it's almost like the technology now is in an immature phase. It's not like white goods. White goods are a very mature technology. So we don't stand around and love our white goods. We put the, the washing in the washing machine. We get on with our lives. <laughs> at the moment, at the moment, what, what we've got is, um, we're not very comfortable with the technology because it's kind of new and, and the technology is using us and we're not using it. And, and part of that is based on the economic incentives that you have with companies like Google and Facebook where they have an incentive for us to give all our attention to the screen because that's how they make money. Yeah. So what we need to do is get a bit better at using the technology when we need it but not being a slave to it. And I think that often happens when something new is introduced. Yeah, it's the same with having excess calories and fast food and, and uh, packaged goods. We thought packaged goods in the 50s and the 70s were, you know, the great food and instant coffee. And then we went, no, nah, let's slow it down. Let's go to slow coffee. And we went back to roast and ground. So it's a little bit like a, a development phase where we need to get better at using the tech because our human needs are the same and our instincts mean that we go too hard into a tech. So that's part of that human behavior element. Uh, and you mentioned you said technology is false, but I mean, it, it, uh, do we not live in this sort of uh, you know premise that we think that all social in- interaction that we do between people is is real? Because a lot of that's false too. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like when you interact with someone, are they really telling you what they think, or are they just telling you what you want to hear? But th- there are certain cues and nuances in humanity and the physicality of life. Yeah, you know, body language. Uh, tone and all of those things which actually get lost in digital. Right? Even watching someone's body language through a screen is not the same as when you're in the room. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the sweat on someone's brow and, and you can sense the tone in someone's voice. Tone is lost when it's uh, in, in the written form. And so when I say it's false, it's, it's a replication which is never as accurate as the physical world. Yeah. And I think eventually, we, I mean, of course we evolve with the technology, but the, the point is that our needs don't change. And I think one of the things we realized during the pandemic is how physical our world is. Like for a long time, a lot of techno utopians and as a futurist, it doesn't mean that I'm actually about human flourishing, which involves technology and that's inevitable. But the thing that we need to remember is that we are physical and social beings where the physical world really matters. And so that delineation thinking you can just live in and on the internet in a virtual world. I think that's, it's a little bit like, um, industrialists thinking that efficiency is the greatest thing in the world. Well, efficiency has its, its upsides, but sometimes being inefficient on purpose actually leads us to a good place. I mean, yeah. most of the inventions that we take for granted today were very inefficient in their early days, like a car. They were far more inefficient than horse and cart when that first came out. But it was people playing with things and being inefficient and having fun and being human. And so there's a real balance that a little bit got lost recently, but I think we're starting to find it again. Are we, do we use um, uh, technology intelligently? Is that one of the things that you try and bring to a business to, to use it to your advantage rather than, uh, as you said, become a slave to it? Um, yeah, that's right. And 
Yeah, the, the, using technology more intelligently is where we're at. We're at a phase now where much of it is here and we need to get better at it. We need to be purposeful and and not just lazy or, or serving the objective of the platform providers. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting, and I, I my dad, you know, Italian immigrant farmer, told me this lesson in business, which is probably the most relevant one today from a you know, market gardener in Word South. He said, never grow your vegetables in someone else's garden. Right, and and what that means is that if you're leasing the land of someone else, they can pull up the roots without notice and change the rules. Yeah, and it's a little bit like that with digital technology. So a, a classic example for businesses is that they might try and grow their membership or fan base in Instagram or Facebook, and I'm like, well, that's really dangerous because they can change how they operate in the rules. And you've built, you've invested. It's like you're building a house on land you don't own, and that doesn't make any sense. And I think that what we need to get better at now is direct connection using technology with our direct consumers. And it might be through our own email list or our own website. We've got to be really careful about that. And so that's one, I think, really important example that business owners, you know, through Wyndham, you know, would be worth thinking about. Yeah. And that's part of the, the, the reinventing of your marketing because it becomes more a direct marketing than it becomes that multimedia marketing sort of model that we've, we've, we've used forever and a day. Yeah, the direct marketing, you know, speaking to people who want to hear from you, who are interested in what you do, is, is really important. And I still think that advertising has its place, Yep. Uh, but I think that there's a real difference between building your business in someone else's forum versus using their forum to attract them, to bring them into your forum. So if you advertise and bring them to your direct place of business, I think that makes sense. But I think if you use their resources, their platform, and have your business based in their platform, I think that's incredibly dangerous. I mean, Amazon does that with their marketplace. They say, come and sell on the Amazon marketplace. And if you're doing really well, let's say you're making, I don't know, uh, certain furniture that sells really well and you've built up a business, Amazon will learn from you and then make their own version of that and put their own furniture ahead of yours. Yeah. And so it's really dangerous. And, and that's one of the things that I don't think gets enough uh, understanding where – we need to be really careful on how we do business. Yeah. Podcasting's an interesting uh, new development of, of recent years. I mean, we're, we're doing one right now and uh, it seems to be a, uh, an area that's, uh, that's gone gangbusters but, uh, and maybe there's too many podcasts, but it's a, it's a very good tool to have in your armoury. It really is. The thing that I love about podcasts is it's what we spoke about earlier. You can really hear a tone like, I'm hoping when people are listening to this, they know that you and I are genuinely interested in exploring uh, you know, my thoughts and your thoughts and what it can mean for the people in Wyndham. Yep. And you can sense tone, and, and I hope that people can sense that we're really authentic with everything that we're saying here. And podcasting reminds me, I mean, you mentioned the word, there's too many, there's a lot of them. And that there'll be the, the big famous ones like the Joe Rogans and, and, and so on. But the, for me, the thing that matters is that niche audiences can be really valuable. And there's a really great story about this that was written oh, gee, nearly 20 years ago called 1,000 True Fans by uh, a technology writer in America called Kevin Kelly, a really smart guy. And he said that if you develop 1,000 true fans for your business, whether it's your click shop, your manufacturing, whatever it is, those 1,000 true fans, you can make a living out of them. And, and it's easy to get... Uh, taken away by the influencers and the millions. Everyone goes, oh, well, I've got you know, a million followers on my TikTok or you know, I've got 100,000 people listening to my podcast. You know what? Maybe 100 or 1,000 is enough. If you had 1,000 people 
and they all spend, you know, $100 on your business a year or $300 on your business a year, the true fans, then all of a sudden that's a $300,000 business. So we've got to avoid the idea of being uh, mistaken by the millions. We don't yeah. need to have millions of followers, right? What we need is people who care about the things that we do. And that might be 100 or 1,000 people. It might be the people within our local cohort. So we need to remember this idea. And it's a great article for listeners to read. It's called 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly. If you Google it, you'll be able to find it. And it really shows us how these tools can be used to our advantage with that direct connection. Yep. Uh, social media strikes me as being the the late in, in many ways. Uh, there's so many, so much good th- uh, about social media, but there's also a hell of a lot of my dad's bigger than your dad. My my Instagram account's bigger than your Instagram yeah. account, or my TikTok's bigger than your TikTok. There's a, a lot yeah. of huff and puff and uh, and no substance in a lot of it. You know what? It's it's a fool's errand, right? And 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 this is where we need to be astute business people and and astute observers of society. And so, you know, the internet's a little bit like a fridge. And so in your fridge, or when you go down the uh, supermarket aisle, you can go down the chips and the lollies and the whatever, and there's not a lot of nutrition in there. Well, the internet's like that too. There's intellectual nutrition or there's junk food for the brain. And we've got to get choosy in what we feed our minds, because certainly what we feed our minds is as important as what we feed our stomachs. And, and, you know, we're at a time where all the world's greatest knowledge for the first time in history is available to us. And yet maybe we watch, you know, silly cat videos. Now, I love cat videos as much as the next guy, but we really get we, – we get the dignity of choice this time around. We get the dignity to choose whether or not we want to educate ourselves and make our business better or look at conspiracy theories. Right? So what all you go down on the internet is really important. And I think uh, it's, it's really silly to compare ourselves to someone who's got more followers or fans or whatever. We've got to be objective-driven and use the tools to educate ourselves or connect with the people we want to connect with. And, you know, having a, you know, mine's bigger than yours sort of stuff, the following, I think it can, it can just be a red herring that's not going to be useful at all. Yeah, exactly. Steve, is it a good time to start up a business, do you think, right now? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's an interesting statistic is that during economic calamities is when 80% of Fortune 500 companies were started. Yeah. And often, you know, when our back's to the wall and it's difficult to get a job, is a good time to start a business. You know, Walt Disney famously started his own uh, cartoon business because he couldn't get he couldn't get a job. And and I think actually, there's a few other reasons why it's a good time to start a business. Is that during times of great change like a pandemic, people's minds are more open because we've had to change our behaviour. And when people have open minds, that's a great time to start something new. And 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 your risk profile is 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 a bit lower. But also, we've got tools to start businesses that are easy, you know, plug and play tools on the internet. It's pretty easy for a non-technical person to build a website through, you know, Wix or Square, you know, Squarespace or just plug into Shopify. Uh, it's, it's really easy to pull the tools together to start something. You know, you can find out who can manufacture things for you. You can advertise cheaply. So we've got all these tools available that have never been more available and the barriers to entry for someone starting a business are really low and you can do it as a start, you know, a side hack, a part-time sort of thing that you do for a couple of hours on the weekend or a couple of hours a night instead of, I don't know, watching strangers get married on an island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you, do you need, uh, do you need a, a business plan, a technology plan, a, uh, you know, a plan for every, every single thing or do you, do you, you fly by a seat of your pants when you start up? What's, what's the best way to go? You know what I reckon? I reckon that planning can be a little bit overrated 
I reckon if you can't put it on one page, you don't know what you're going to do. And I think that if you just say, here's the problem that I want to solve, right, or here's the thing that I want to do better than someone else is doing it, and just do it. Keep your cost low, do a minimum viable product, the smallest, lowest cost way to market, and try and sell something. Because when things are planned, they're just fantasy. Try and sell something, you're really going to learn. So look, my, my advice is actually go the seat of the pants. Just try and keep your cost as low as possible and then get real-world feedback from the market because theory can get in the way of reality. And so I think that there's nothing better than just saying, look, I'm going to try and sell fresh fruit online. I'm going to try and uh, you know, do my web business, uh, my design business online. Just have a crack. Just put it up there and try and sell and see if you can get a customer. I think getting one customer, you'll learn more than that than you'd learn in 100 pages of business planning. Yeah. What about jobs for the future? Where do you see where do you see that heading? Yeah, I think I think it's been overhyped in terms of jobs going away due to technology. For every one job that technology takes away, it usually invents two. I mean, let's go back to the industrial level technology, and this is a live example of me practicing what I preach and trying to demystify things. So let's think about the idea of the car. Everyone's like, well, what will we do when the car comes? What will happen to people who chew horses' feet and make buggy whips, right? Well, when the car comes, you have something like a drive-through that can't exist. You have something like a shopping centre that can't exist. You have a car wash business that can't exist before that. So the car, as a technology, is invented an inordinate number of businesses. Likewise, technology has invented a number of businesses. I mean, think about the smartphone. Before that, you can't have any geolocated business. You can't have Uber Eats. Uh, you can't have apps. And there's currently more than 2 million app developers in the world. And, and learning to the software to make an app is not that hard. You can learn it in six months for free online. And it's no harder than teaching a, a child uh, how to learn the alphabet because it's just language computer coding. It's not mathematics like people think. It's actually language. Yeah. So it's not that hard. And so I think that the prospect for jobs in the future is really high. And a couple of really weird things are going to happen. I think the highest paid jobs are going to be the jobs that humans do. You will pay more because a human is doing it. So another example is, okay, what does a Nescafe Blend 43 coffee cost? I don't know, three cents to make it home, but we will pay 100 times the price of that for a barista to make it at our local cafe <laughs> and a Chatterbox Cafe in Werribee, right? <laughs> right? So, yeah. so this is an interesting example. And if you think about a Beyonce song, right, I can listen to it for free on Spotify, but to watch her do it live is going to cost me $200 at a concert because a human is doing it is where the value will be. I can get some cheap IKEA furniture, but maybe I want a handcrafted table from an artisan from Czechoslovakia who happens to live in my local area. Yeah. So, so technology in some ways enables us to get new jobs. And, and I think that you know, there's a lot of other tech jobs that will – high prospects. I think data and privacy and security will be really strong areas of growth. I think 3D printing and design and manufacturing will be strong areas of growth. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to outsource left brain logic to the microchip and more of the jobs will be about creativity and humanity going forward. So I actually think humans are really well placed. So does that, um, is that advantageous for a 40 plus um, person who's listening to this or is it a disadvantage? Absolutely. Then? No, that's an advantage. Like we're starting to realise the value of some things that I think got disenfranchised during the industrial era. In the industrial era, it was all about a factory can make it better and cheaper than you do and you're out of business. Actually, you know, handcrafting, knowledge, the ability to connect with humans, all of these things are really coming back. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's great. Uh, and I also think that local communities are going to go through a real growth phase with this hybrid working from anywhere. 
So I actually think we're really well placed and, and we should start thinking about our lives. And look, I'm in my forties. And I've reinvented my career a hundred times. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, right? That's, that's, <laughs> like we've got to stay curious. Yep. And, and if you wanted to learn something 20 years ago, I remember I learned all the computer code books in the Werribee Library, you know, back in the 80s. And that was, I was dumb. That was the end. I read them all and learned them all. The end. Well, now if you want to learn something and you're in your 40s, you go, you know what? I've always been curious about X or Y. You can go online and learn it for free today. Yeah. That's crazy. Like, the only thing you need is the will to do it, right? And if you can read, you can do it. The most complex thing a computer can do is what we call natural language processing, and that's the ability of a computer to speak a human language. That's the most complex code, which tells me that if you can read and speak, you have all the intelligence required to survive in the modern world. And so you can reinvent yourself if you want to, right? There's 24 hours in a day, and that's the great equalizer. Anyone out there who wants to reinvent themselves or their career and they're in their 40s or above, now's the time to do it. And you can reach out and find people who want to do it. I mean, I think it's an extraordinary opportunity. Steve, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. How do people find out, uh, you know, more about uh, where where can they see you, where can they hear you, where can they uh, read you? Yeah, so I'm on on, on radio quite a bit on 3AW. Um, People should reach out to me at stevesamatino.com. Now, if anyone reaches out to me with any question anytime, sends me an email on there, then uh, on my website, I'll answer within 24 hours. You know, I, I'm, I'm here to help people. My, my job largely is helping people. Now, I get corporations who pay me to give this advice for their business and brand strategy. But you know what? There's nothing that gives me more pleasure than when someone reaches out and says, hey, Steve, I'm looking at this. And it doesn't take much of an effort for me to give someone a phone call and get them on the path. So I would love if people could reach out to me on stevesamatino.com and I do a um, an email uh, that you can sign up to where once a week I give a thought on the future, yep. a little bit like this podcast where I write something down on a Friday morning and uh, it'll appear in your inbox. So please just reach out to me on stevesamatino.com and you can find me on social media as well uh, yeah. if you just search my name. But I'd, I'd love to hear from people. Uh, it's been a delight to catch up with you, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, some uh, some very, uh, very Thought-provoking stuff there, and I think some uh, terrific advice for people. Uh, so thank you uh, once again for joining me on the Talking Women podcast. Kevin, an absolute honour and a pleasure to speak to you, mate. You're a stalwart of the industry of sharing ideas by voice, mate, and it's a real honour to likewise to speak with you. Some fascinating insights indeed, and you can check out his website, stevesamartino.com. That's S-A-M-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. We thank Steve for his time. Hope you enjoyed this edition of the podcast. Until the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Check out the Committee for Wyndham website and also their Facebook page, and we'll see you next time on the Talking Wyndham podcast. Thanks for listening. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page.